For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Imagine working for a company that rejects the idea that things should be done a certain way just because they always have been. A company that genuinely believes in system-shaking innovation in the sustainable fashion space. One that works with startups, and back when it was a startup in the highly competitive luxury sector, believed in doing things completely differently and refused to use leather and fur at a time when that was considered pretty risky business. Can you guess the brand? Of course you can. What if I throw in the fact that it's a very, very glamorous place to work, the clothes are amazing and everyone looks completely chic? You've guessed it. This week's guest comes from Stella McCartney. She heads up the sustainability team there. She is Claire Bergkamp, Stella McCartney's worldwide sustainability and innovation director. A self-confessed fibre nut and information junkie, Claire studied at UCL and is a friend of the Centre for Sustainable Fashion. Actually, she calls Dillis Williams her mentor. And if you haven't checked out the episode from Series 2 that we did with Dillis yet, please do. We'll share a link. Now, you might want to listen to this interview with Claire a couple of times because it's rich with information and tools that can really help fashion advance and reform. From Curring's environmental profit and loss system to biodynamic farming to protecting forests, we cover it all. We talk about the brand's commitment with Canopy to ensure that 100% of Stella McCartney's viscose is sourced from sustainably managed forests. And I'm not sure if you know that the industry is responsible for the felling of about 150 million trees a year. If you've just been following all the news from Paris Fashion Week, I bet you do know that because Stella's show brought the canopy story mainstream via the hashtag There She Grows. And that saw people like Gwyneth Paltrow, Drew Barrymore and Oprah getting behind Canopy's campaign to save the looser rainforest in Sumatra. And we'll share a link. But it just goes to show how Stella McCartney uses her platform for activism. What else? We cover circularity new-gen fabrics, those made from sustainable materials, from waste, even grown in the lab. And we get into the changing times. Did you catch the news story at the end of last year from online shopping aggregate List that revealed that searches for vegan leather alternatives were up by 47% in 2018? So the times are changing. We dig deep into that whole story about vegan leather alternatives. And I really find this fascinating and useful because I get loads of questions on Instagram about is sustainably produced leather even possible? How about vegetable tanned leather? What about the fact that plastics used in vegan leather alternatives don't biodegrade? So this is really a must listen and you're going to want to hear what Claire has to say about this. She is a fantastic human and a bit of a genius. I really love this twisty, turny, info-packed discussion. And I also ask her about her personal journey and how she got to where she is today. When I ask what drives her, she talks about innate curiosity. That's something I share. I ask a lot of questions, she tells me. I just want to get to the truth of things. We recorded this in December at Stella McCartney's HQ, while COP24, the UN Climate Change Conference, was happening in Poland. Did you hear the news that came out of that? Absolutely brilliant stuff. The UN Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Change was launched, with more than 40 brands signing up to the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. And I'll share a link to the details. But it's basically about brands getting together in working groups to figure out a roadmap for this, looking at things like raw material use, manufacturing and logistics. Stella McCartney is of course front and centre. 
Enjoying the show? Don't forget to hit subscribe in iTunes. And please consider leaving me a rating or a review. I do so love that. But now, it's time to hear from two Claires who are obsessed with making fashion more sustainable. Claire, I cannot express how excited I am to be here talking to you at this moment, because actually... COP24 is happening and there's loads of news which we're going to get into and discuss but welcome Claire Thank Bergkamp. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'm sure listeners are going to be really excited to hear all about what goes on in sustainability here at Stella McCartney. Just tell us where we are. Um, we are in our London headquarters. This is our main office. It's our biggest office. We're in West London, not that far from um, Notting Hill and this is where the design happens, the corporate offices. It's our kind of main hub for everything. It's where I am. Now, Anyone who is passionate about sustainability knows that Stella McCartney, the company and the woman, leads this conversation. But I'm interested in the idea that also if you're not into this and you don't really know very much about sustainable fashion, Stella McCartney is the one you know. You get it. She's the sustainability, I want to say queen, but I don't believe in crowning queens. (laughs) Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how that works? Like, What's your vision and how come it has such big reach? Well, I think that with Stella, because of her pioneering nature and her bravery, it's why people think of her, is that when we're talking about sustainability here and when Stella talks about it personally, it comes with a level of integrity because it's personal. And I think that's kind of a lot of why people listen to her, why people listen to the brand, is that this is not a marketing exercise here. This is a way of revolutionizing how the fashion industry does business. And that is a very different approach. It's not, let's put a Band-Aid on this. It's, let's really look at every piece, every part of the system, and figure out what we need to change to make things better. It's also been deep and long-term. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Stella founded the business in 2001. Um, it was a joint venture which with, with the Gucci group then, um, now Caring. And um, really from day one, you know, there's been some value-led proposition. It really started for Stella around the vegetarian conversation. So in 2001, when she founded the company, I mean, from day one, no leather, no fur, no feathers, no skins. And in the luxury industry, that is quite a radical proposition. You know? Well, people yeah. thought she couldn't do it. I mean, yeah. there was plenty of chatter that how can you make a luxury successful accessories business built on no leather yeah and I th- people still think that I think a little bit um but which you proved you can but you proved you can <laughs> <laughs> but that's from day one you know that kind of value-led business is so unusual anywhere and especially in luxury fashion we're going to get on to the no leather aspect and cruelty-free aspect shortly but I just want to say this quote to you or repeat this quote back to you Stella said recently who wants to talk about this season's color or the next it bag the sustainability conversation is really the only one that I'm interested in having I punched the air when I heard that. (laughs) She's awesome. I mean, what a joy to work for a woman like that, right? It's incredible. I feel like, so one of the first questions people would want to ask you, Claire, is what's it like to work for Stella and in such an important role as a global director of sustainability and... Innovation. Innovation. (laughs) Sorry, got that one. Back to front. But yeah, so people are going to want to know... What's it like to work here in that role? I mean, it it is a dream job. I mean, there's no way to talk about it without just sounding incredibly cheesy, frankly, (laughs) because in our world of sustainability, I think that, you know, in so many positions, I have so many friends in this area, you know, it's a real community. I'm sure you've learned that doing the podcast. Like, we all know each other. We are a community. But a lot of people who have my job in, you know, different types of fashion businesses, it's a very different job. You know, it's about risk management only. It's about, you know, how do we minimize risk here? What do we do to really cover ourselves? And that is not what yeah. it is to work for Stella. It's, it really is like, how do we change this completely? Like, we don't accept that just because things have been done a certain way, it's the right way to do them. And I think that that's a very different mindset, you know, to work for someone with that mindset, someone like Stella, instead of, you know, a big corporate giant, it's just like, deal with the risk, you know, minimize our coverage. It's so different, isn't it? It reminds me of something that I read that Doug Stevens, who is someone I like to follow, he calls himself the retail prophet, was writing about why retail is, I think his headline was, why are so many retailers content to die (laughs) on the business of fashion last week? But he was saying there's such a difference between iterate and innovation those two kind of cliched words yeah but basically saying just kind of piecemeal changing along the route you're already going that is not the same as massive system shake-up innovation which is what you do yeah absolutely I mean that is it is a very different way of working and so working for Stella you know working in this business doing this job is just such a pleasure I mean of course it's a lot of hard work but it's it comes with such a reward next to it because 
it's not about doing a capsule collection. It's not about doing a one-off. It really is about revolutionizing, disrupting, you know, overused word, but accurate, you but know, really so nice disrupting to it. to use them accurately yeah. for once. Yes. Instead of just <laughs> <Right hashtag. there. laughs> disruption. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Claire, what does your job actually entail? Describe it to me. My job. So my job has changed a lot over the years. I started in 2012, and when I started, I was actually by myself. I was the first person oh, to come in. I was going to ask you. Yeah. Okay. Because so, I was like, how big is it as a yeah, department? It's so big it now. was one. For me, yeah, for the first couple of years it was just me and so when I first started I was doing everything you know I was covering human rights I was covering environmental compliance everything well, ethical was part of your job title Absolutely. that word right yeah. ethical ethical trade when I first started and I did that for quite a while uh, for a couple of years and then the first person I hired in was an ethical trade human rights we call it social sustainability now just because that's a bit more where our mind is um, but that was an expert on that side because that's not my background honestly and I wanted someone that could really you know live that and now the team is we have six people in London and three people in Italy, so it's grown a lot. And so my job now versus what I did then is very different. A lot of what I do now is the same stuff, which is around supply chains, traceability, you know, really building integrity and getting back to the farms, building that all in. I've always worked with the design team very closely from the beginning because that's where a design house, I mean, that's really where the decisions are made and the sourcing team is really, really closely and all the fabric mills and everybody else. I know um, you're a fabric nut. I'm a fiber nut, at least. Yeah, I am. I'm a raw material nut. And then I think the biggest change now in my job is that I do a lot of work with startups. Uh, so I spend a lot of my life talking to startups, working with startups. The kind of innovation side has really come in full force because so, it's really interesting to us. Are you talking about, for example, bolt threads? Yeah, exactly. Or about, yeah. um, what's the mushroom one I met Gavin the other day? Um, well, there's a couple of mushroom ones. We're actually working with bolt on that as well. Oh, they, have, yeah. they have a material called Milo. So really like seeking out these almost inventors, yeah. scientists, people who are shaking up the way that we can turn materials circular. Absolutely. Circularity plays a big role in it. I mean, our two biggest buckets for innovation are things that allow animal free. So Bolt is a great example of that. Bolt Threads with their micro silk, which is a lab engineered, lab grown, lab brewed. Mimicking silk. spider. Yeah, silk. spider silk. Um, you know, building in the DNA from the spider silk into the yeast. Very cool. They brew it. It's incredible. They also have Milo, which is a mycelium leather. Um, and there's a couple other ones in that bucket around animal free. And then circularity is the other big bucket for us. Like, how do we truly enable fiber to fiber recycling? You know, that's got to be the way forward. But then there's other little ones here and there. And there's lots. And there's so many. And a lot of it is finding people that are already in the textile space, of course. But actually, some of our best partners that we have right now weren't from the textile space at all. For example? Um, there's a company that we're working with on polyester recycling that was actually not at all interested in fashion and just had solved it for PET recycling. But that can actually be a really strong route towards innovation because we get out of our mindset of, okay, this is the fashion world and this is how we do it, yeah. right? And we got to work together outside of our own industry. And often the fashion industry is much slower than other industries. Oh, do you think? Sometimes. Mm. Sometimes. Um, or there's a company called Mango Materials that we don't have a, like, a partnership with directly, but I've known for years and you know they had no interest in what fashion they when they started. They are doing methane capture. They use a bacteria, they feed methane to it, and it basically creates a polymer. And when they started, they weren't at all interested in textiles. But over the years, that's really where they're kind of heading now. Um, and they've been part of Fashion for Good. Well, I nearly met them, yeah. actually. They were yeah. going to be on a panel at Remode, but then didn't end up coming. And I did look them up, but I didn't understand the tech behind it. It's quite complicated. It is, but it's incredible. I mean, it's a way to capture greenhouse gas. And it's a truly biodegradable polymer that also biodegrades in marine environments. You know it's what I thought so when cool. I read it? I was like, oh, mango waste, because banana waste, banana pineapple name. waste. <laughs> they know. They know maybe the name needs a... But actually, it's interesting how much innovation there has been around cellulosic fibers, oh, just yeah. looking at food waste. Talk yep. to me about some of those. Yeah, I mean, well, for cellulosics, I mean, we work with Evernew. Um, which is another textile recycler, less on the agricultural side. Stacey Flynn. Yeah, Stacey Flynn's the CEO. She's incredible. We're one of their partners. They've got a few other brand partners, and they're amazing. And just um, for listeners who aren't aware of that, what does Evernew do? Evernew is a regenerated recycled cellulose that is created from cotton textile waste, so old, worn-out cotton textiles. So you've got a cotton T-shirt, you've worn it to shreds. What they've done, what they're creating, is this um, completely out-there innovative chemical process where you put the cotton in and extract the cellulose in the same way we do with trees right now. So, you know, we cut down trees right now to do that. So they can do that because any plant has cellulose, including a cotton t-shirt. They can take the cellulose out of the cotton t-shirt, turn it into a viscose rayon, which is a much better way probably in the mm. long run than cutting down the forest to do that. Oh my goodness, canopy. Yeah. I wanted to get to that later, but since yeah. you raised it, fantastic. I only heard this through Stella speaking at Copenhagen. Yeah. 150 million trees, trees every year. year. Yep. 
cut down and used for the fashion industry? Yeah, 150 million. It's a lot. What is Canopy? Canopy is an NGO. They are one of our favorite NGOs. We have a lot of favorite NGOs, but I'd say they're right up there, right at the top. They're based out of Canada. It's a pretty small group of women, actually, for the most part. And they've had an incredible impact on the fashion industry, raising awareness on this issue. So we started working with them in 2014. And I think that's when a lot of companies kind of became aware of this issue. Really before that, I just don't think the fashion industry, any of us, had really acknowledged the tie between viscose rayon and forest. Well, I presumed that it was all sustainably grown wood sources, whether it were eucalypts or I don't know. Yeah, and ours come from Sweden, our viscose now. Like we have a completely traceable, fully sustainably managed supply chain. The beginning of our viscose is in Sweden in a forest. It's sustainably managed. The viscose is produced in Germany and it's a viscose filament, so it's a little different than some of the other stuff on the market, um, quality wise mostly. But the fact that canopy raises is that often we're logging forests. I don't know if they're old growth for us, actually. Ancient and endangered. I mean, my God. Yeah. So and one, what, making one them third, into a blouse? Yeah. So one third of the 150 million trees, they say, is coming from ancient and endangered forests. So places like Indonesia, where there's oh. so little intact forest left, or even like the Russian uh, boreal forest or the Canadian boreal forest, like these perfect, beautiful, magical ecosystems that are full of wildlife. And for our goddamn blouses. I know. I mean, I can't even And give even us air. Do. Right. Let's keep all that carbon locked away. We're cutting down those forests and, yeah, turning it into a blouse. It feels like an undertold story, that one, actually. I think that we need to do a podcast on canopy. But I think that people may be very surprised to learn that that's possibly the case with some viscose, rayon, whatever it is. I mean, mean, there's lots of brand names for it. There is, yeah, lots of brand names. Anything that's cellulose. But, I mean, you'd be surprised. Like, I'm always surprised how few people even know that it is a forestry product. Like, more or less even, is it sustainable? Like, there's such a lack of knowledge that... Well, it's, I mean, it's not logical that a dress started as a tree. But then we also have this problem where I think because sustainability is so complex and you really have to dig deep and understand all the nuances and differences between fabrics and origins and certification boards, all this stuff, your average consumer just doesn't have time or the inclination to do that. And so we have this perception, which is viscose or cellulosics or how would you think of it in the market, rayon, let's yeah. say, is sustainable. Yeah. So to hear that actually, potentially, it's wrecking old growth forests or wrecking ancient forests is devastating It is devastating. And then, I mean, and then there's a chemical piece to it that's pretty hardcore as well. Like, if it's not coming from a well-managed factory, I mean, even at a well-managed factory, there's a very heavy chemical impact of viscose. And it's whether the solvents aren't captured. Yeah. And, I mean, even in the best-case scenario, like, we can't ignore that there's an impact there. But in the best-case scenario, at least it's being dealt with. You made a commitment to make sure that 100% of your collections that were using viscose were sustainably sourced yes talk to us about that so that we made that commitment in 2014 we made a commitment letter with canopy that we you know public public commitment um, that said by 2017 all of our viscose would be from sustainably managed forests or more specifically that they would be free from ancient and endangered forests but we thought that to ensure that we should also make sure that we <laughs> was sustainable and so it took us two years like it was a, it's I mean most most of these projects that have real integrity take about two years in my experience it do, they don't happen overnight of course not because uh, it's you, a big change a big shift you're proving it can be done yeah and then so for us at the end of 2016 we met it you know and I think that we're probably still one of the only brands if not the only brand that still uses viscose that can say that 100% of it comes from traceable, sustainably managed forests. Let's have a call to arms. If you work in an organisation that uses viscose, you could try and find out some more information about the supply chain behind it, and we could all try to work towards using only sustainably sourced viscose, because obviously it's a huge problem. Yeah, and if you haven't signed up with Canopy, if you're at a brand, sign up. You know, they can still use more brands. We can always use more brands working together because the market signal there is really important to show to some of the suppliers that aren't taking this seriously, some of the viscose producers that aren't taking it seriously. One of the good things is when Stella McCartney does something, everyone goes, oh, <laughs> we should do that. That's good. Come on. And this one's a bit of an old story for us, but we still talk about it all yeah. the time, you know. But it's because it's really important. It's I want still to talk really about important. an even older story, which yep. is, although it's continuous, so it doesn't date, but which is, as you mentioned, that Stella McCartney was originally known for cruelty-free, for using no leather and no animal products. And that back then she was a bit of an outlier. I'm going to just correct you a little, because we do use wool, so we don't oh, say yes. no animal products. We just say Thank vegetarian. You. Good. Yes. Important. Yes. But non-mulesed wool. Absolutely. So cruelty-free, yes. but vegetarian. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to raise some research. Did you see it? There was just 
from List, which is basically looking at what shoppers are searching for online. And there was a 47% increase in searches for vegan leather. I love that. I loved it. Fascinating. So great. Why do you think there's so much more interest in this space? And I guess the other context is all of these brands jumping on the I'm not going to use fur anymore bandwagon. Yeah, which is also great, honestly. I think that there's an awareness now. I think that the rise of awareness around food has translated into fashion. You know, that there's been, you know, there's been quite a few documentaries and books and news articles around the impact that we have eating meat or not eating meat. And, you know, we're not saying everyone needs to go vegan, but even just reducing your meat intake as a human has a huge, huge climate benefit. Yeah, it's not just about cruelty to animals. It's actually also about About the environment. And then, of course, the cruelty side as well. I mean, like not wanting to be part of, you know, again, with food, you know, factory farming, all of that. And I think that awareness then translates over to fashion because once you know that, it's very easy to understand that that same factory farming system for meat is also giving you the leather for your shoes. And I think that that correlation is slowly translating over where people don't want, you know, they want to eat a certain way and they want to dress the same way. That's kind of how I feel. Because mm-hmm. you've seen, like, at the same time, the rise in veganism and vegetarianism going up. Often I hear, oh, it's okay because this leather is a byproduct of the meat industry. But that isn't always verifiable. Or it's, actually, yeah. if you look at some research, you would say that's generally a rubbish. <laughs> yes, I think it's it's a controversial one because there's not really any proof one way or the other, truthfully. I mean, but, you know, it's a byproduct, but it's also paid for, so it's not like it's waste. But the value of a skin, for example, exactly. of a cow is worth a lot more than the steak, so you are actually seeing clearing of the Amazon in order to raise leather. Yeah, I mean, and, so, and again, it is market by market. Like, it's not a hard across-everything fact, but it's also not fair to just call it a byproduct. Mm. That is, in my opinion, incorrect, and it's a complicated issue, but, like, if you compare the two materials side by side... Like, leather has a, such a higher impact than the alternatives to leather. I mean, we see that, like, in the worst-case scenarios, like, if you're cutting it from Brazil, if you're getting leather out of Brazil, um, it's, like, 24 times the impact of leather Is versus it? polyester. How do you find this research? We use it. We do the EPNL, so um, the Environmental Profit and Loss, which is something that the Caring Group developed, which is an innovative way of really looking at your full value chain impact by assigning natural capital um, to each one of those impacts, looking at kind of all of the impact, not just a piece of it. Um, it looks at a few different impact categories and really across the entire supply chain, so from our operations all the way through to the farms and fields, and that's how we get these comparisons. Is that commonly used by brands in this space? No, it's Mm. quite complicated. (laughs) But I I am seeing more and more companies looking at natural capital accounting as a way to look at their impact because I think that it it translates things in a very different way by putting a monetary value on it. And I do think that is a very useful tool. I mean, we've worked on it. I've worked on it since 2013, and I've learned a ton through it. It's not a perfect tool, of course, but it has helped us uncover things we would have never seen otherwise. Can I just ask you back on this leather-free yeah. or alternative leather question? One of the things I often get asked on social media is, I'm an anti-plastics campaigner, right? So people often like, war on plastic, beat plastic pollution. And I say, yes, let's do that. Never put a straw in my cocktail. <laughs> but um, one of the questions I'm asked around is, okay, but if a vegan leather alternative is actually plastic, isn't that worse for the environment? than leather might be and what about the fact that it doesn't biodegrade yeah I, I think I mean I think these are all valid questions to be raising I, I would also say of course leather is not that biodegradable because of all the toxins yeah it takes to a, tan it around 40 to 50 years for leather to biodegrade because I mean if you think about does leather I yeah I mean it's your skin like if you cut off a piece of your skin as a human it biodegrades immediately I mean it's quite gross but quite accurate but to make it stop doing that you have to put it through a very heavy chemical process to make it so it doesn't naturally just fall apart and so by doing that you're stopping its ability to biodegrade easily so it is still biodegradable I suppose in like a very loose sense of the term but it's going to take 40 to 50 years right and it's also interesting how we use that word natural because again it's another one of those words that we don't define it correctly natural once natural (laughs) once but I mean by the time it's in a handbag or a shoe it really has gone through so much processing to get it to that place I mean most tanning still uses heavy metals but plastic now I don't know about the materials that you might use for example in a bag but I know for example one of the worst ones is a nylon fishing line it can last for 600 years in the ocean oh 600 years absolutely yep and so that's what I was going to say also is that so with our leather alternatives I think that 
it's not to blame only the leather industry. We, have, of course, have to look at what we're doing. And where we think, where I, where I really believe we're going, and what well, we are going, is that they're going to just have to become and will become circular. Because the innovator that I was talking about, the recycler, they can recycle our faux leathers. Really? Yeah. Really? I was so, going to ask you about that. Yeah. So I brought so you these so you could touch oh, them. I brought, brought some, I brought some little samples. Okay, so these are like our main... On. And actually, it's very interesting to touch this in your presence. This one here... I mean, they feel fantastic, don't they? Yeah, they're really nice quality. I mean, they've been developed for a long time, but um, these materials that we're touching are basically polyesters with coatings on them. I was going to ask you, so what goes into yeah. making it? So it's primarily polyester. Like, the main building block here is a polyester. And so we do use recycled polyesters a lot of the time in them, but we haven't been able to get it for everything because of some quality issues, because in our space, in the luxury space, you know, quality and sustainability and design go hand in hand in hand. You know, and we're always balancing the three, but what we needed here to actually make these materials truly sustainable is to make them circular. And so we have this partner now, which has really, really revolutionized things for us, because not only can they recycle this, they can give us back a much higher quality recycled polyester, or PET pellet, basically, that we can turn into polyester than we can get right now. Could you make it into another bag? Absolutely. That's, That's the plan. Really? Absolutely. Because one of the questions around circularity is, of course, that often you're downcycling. Yeah, no, but that's we are not into downcycling because we're a luxury brand. So when we're talking about these recycling innovations, we're talking about at the same quality as Virgin, if not higher. Talk to me also, because I found this intriguing and I just learned it from your website. I wasn't yeah. aware that one of the treatments or coatings that you apply to this is actually vegetable oil. The one you're holding, yep. Is it? Yeah. Um, so the, the top layer is a vegetable oil coating, which, I mean, I think people sometimes actually think of like vegetable oil, vegetable oil, because it's shiny. But um, it is just really, it's a biopolymer, but right. it's a cereal-based biopolymer. Mm. It's actually European cereals, so it's also not GMO corn, which is nice. Really? Yeah. God, this stuff is fascinating. Yeah. You um, are the digger deeply into the supply chain. Yeah. That's woman. the job. <laughs> that is the, that is actually probably the job. Is Do you the get excited investigating. When you find that? Yeah. That oh, sort of it's thing, great. I mean. I mean, and we've used this for a really long time. We call it our eco alter Napa, and it's great. But it's still got polyester in it. So, mm. like, it, you know, it's each one of these things is a piece of the pie. And I think we're right now finally kind of connecting it and able to create a truly circular thing for the first time. Okay. The last piece of that puzzle is what about capturing it? Capturing it from from a post-consumer waste perspective. So obviously yeah. I know that Stella McCartney works with The Real Real and you encourage one part of the circularity piece, which is keeping clothes in use for longer and second, third, fourth life, etc. Yep. But after the end of that, how are you going to get it back? That's what we're working on now. And we're actually, and, you uh, talked to Eon? Yeah, yeah, we have talked to Eon, ah, actually. Uh, we've um, talked to quite a few people on this area, and it's kind of a little like watch say, that space. Eon is a startup run by a friend of mine called Natasha Frank. And the idea is to create a digital identity for every product and every garment you can think of so that we can track it down the line. Obviously, it's a big ask and we need lots of stakeholder input to figure out a system for that. But it's basically a tag, like yeah. an RFID tag. Which is amazing. And we are looking at pretty much all of the options in that space because we will move on it pretty quickly. So what do you do now? Do you accept product back? So we offer repair on bags like any luxury brand does because that's you know kind of standard practice. If you pay that much for a bag, you should be able to have it repaired. So that's we've always done that. That's not new. Um, with the Real Real, we've been, like, like you said, kind of looking at the re-commerce piece, which in luxury makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's really like the first step towards circularity is keeping things in the system for as long as possible. Possible. But brands have been very nervous to get involved in that because they think it's devaluing their main products and yeah. they're, they're nervous and they sometimes do it a bit behind the scenes, I think, <laughs> with Vestier, for example. I know that. But, you know, there's not a lot of consumer-facing policy on this where brands will say, yes, we're super into the second-hand economy. Yeah, and we have. And you we have. are. Again, you're <laughs> yeah. the disruptors. And we're looking at other options in that space and, like, how, we, how do we want to do it in-house? How would that look? And I can't really talk about it in any more detail right now. It's a bit but kind of... About oh, it. definitely. It's conversation. I mean, I'd say watch that space. It'll it'll be coming out pretty soon. Wow. But then um, the other piece of that, as far as the reclaim, is that there's actually just a huge amount of factory waste right now. So cut and sew. Yeah, I mean, not a huge amount, but there's, I mean, there's scraps being cut of off. Of course. And that's the piece we've been really focused on capturing because. What do you do then? We send it to the recyclers. Really? Yeah. So Econel, we use Econel for a lot, all of our nylon in the bags. So they'll come get it for us. We've get just been out. scoring it. Um, so we can Brilliant. put it into a warehouse, a little warehouse, until they come get it from us. They're in Slovenia. You know, we're in Italy. It's just a little, come pick it up when they're doing their rounds. This is, I often come back to this 
statement, but I think it's so relevant. It's just common sense, but someone needs to think of it and obviously put systems in place. And it's not actually rocket science, No, God, no. It is common sense, and I feel like people don't apply common sense very often, unfortunately. And we're moving so quickly. Like, the industry, like, it really is just moving so quickly. Mm. I mean, and we're moving way less quickly than, you know, some of the big fast fashion guys, but you know, we still move at quite a pace and it's just to take a moment. That's our job. That's the sustainability department's job in a lot of ways is to take the moment, take the space and look at how we need to fix the systems. I'm going to throw this at you. What kind of person are you? (laughs) I was just thinking, what allows you to be thinking in this way? Um, Obviously, you're good at multitasking and think problem solving, but where does this come from in you and what drives you in this space? You know, I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. And I think that's really what drives me is I want to get to the truth of everything at the end of the day. And it's just like, that's who I was in anything I've ever done. And it applies well to this work. And I just ask a lot of questions and annoy everyone deeply. Um, (laughs) And that's, I think, where the success comes from is just that continued pushing towards wanting to know how things work. Just not accepting this is the way. No, because it's not often. What on earth did you do to get here, Claire Bergkamp? (laughs) (laughs) You obviously are an American. I am. Are you from Montana? I am from Montana. Tell me about when you were growing up. What did you want to be when you were a kid? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a costume designer. And that's what I did first. So I loved, or in fashion, I've always loved clothing. Like, it's what, what I've been drawn why to. Why costumes? What? I love film. I mean, it's that simple. Like, I loved film and I loved the idea of the psychology of clothing and getting into the characters and kind of looking at why people wear what they wear. Um, that was Same. always really, really interesting to me. What films were you glued to as a little nipper? Oh, gosh. Some terrible Disney films that are actually wonderful, but <laughs> um, I don't know, the classics. I mean, when I was more, I mean, what, like cl- Clueless. No, oh, Clueless. like classics for me. <laughs> Teenage classics, thank you. I love that. I'm like, gone, gone with, with the, the wind, wind. and to have and have not. Nope, clueless. clueless. <laughs> but I watched, uh, my, my mom always had me watching like Marilyn Monroe movies, like those types, the Audrey Hepburn, like a lot of the black and white stuff too. Casablanca, what did your parents all that do? Stuff. Uh, my father is a naturopathic acupuncturist in Montana. Uh, my mother is a artist and she, when growing up, she illustrated books a lot. She is a botanist as well. So she did botanical illustrations ah, for books. I was looking for nature. Oh, and then nature, I mean, it's Montana. So everything is nature and that's why they moved there. They're not from Montana, but. Well, I've never been, describe it, big uh, sky. Beautiful, mountains, plains, really, really beautiful place. And I a mean. A feeling I, for nature because it's surrounding you. And I was surrounded by conservationists. My parents' friends are a lot of them in the conservation space. There's a lot of conservation in Montana. Um, it's a pretty special place, I think, in the U.S., and there's a huge amount of public lands there. I think it may be the most in the U.S. I'm not, I should check that, mm. but very high up there, if not the state with the most public lands. And just access to nature, you know, protection of nature. And what's interesting about Montana is a lot of times that's a bipartisan issue which, you know, it isn't most places because both sides of the aisle in the U.S. or in Montana really want to protect it and have access to it. Mm. And it's not necessarily like in the way that I want to where I want to like hug the trees and really protect it, but (laughs) people want to keep Montana wild. And it really is special. And I think growing up there, I mean, absolutely. I've had a respect and interest in nature that I didn't really recognize until I was much older, but it's such a huge part of who I am. You worked as a costume designer. Yeah. For how long? Um, so I studied costume design, and then I moved to L.A. and lived in L.A. for about three and a half, four years and did it, and was working on TV and film, and a lot of what I did was shopping, so I was a shopper. So Did the I, shopping cause you to switch? It did. <laughs> it did. Or at least it was a big part of it. I think the amount of waste associated with felt, uh, the whole industry, you know, just the amount Actually, of clothing waste. Actually, that's an untold waste. story, too. Yeah, like, just like, I remember wrapping this big TV show that I was on, um, that I won't name, but that we just put, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of giant boxes of clothing in a, a warehouse in the valley. You know, millions I'm of dollars. I'm talking about single use. I, I mean, mean no, mm. most of it not even worn, honestly, oh, gosh. because when we'd buy doubles and triples of things, and I would spend all day shopping, I'd spend all day driving around buying clothing, you know, to take it back. Oh and my put God, you were a shopaholic on someone else's remit, though. How yeah, and I mean, you, I mean, literally all day. Like, it was, you know, eight hours a day in a car, mauled and mauled and mauled. Did and you have an epiphany? Did you think, oh, yeah. I'm going to now go and change direction specifically into sustainability? I mean, it was, it was a slow epiphany, but yes, it was. I mean, I knew that I didn't want to do that 
anymore. I could see where I was getting to, and it wasn't where I wanted to get to. Um, I got very lucky. I got into the union right away, which in L.A. is a big part of, you know, being able to work. Um, and I got on some pretty big jobs, and I kind of saw where I was getting to, and I didn't want to get there. And I started looking around to figure out what else I wanted to do. And I ran across the Center for Sustainable Fashion, and that's really where I changed my course. I'm just going to interject there to say that if listeners have not heard the episode with Dillis Williams, who founded the Centre for Sustainable Fashion at the London College of Fashion, then please do. We'll share a link in the show notes, but it's a companion piece to this episode, I think. Yeah, Um, Dillis is such a mentor to me and really did help me understand that there could be a very different side to the fashion industry and to clothing in general. And that's why I moved to London, is I, I, wanted to, I knew I wanted to go back and study. I was looking at that already. And then when I came across LCF and the center, that's where I knew I had to go. And I didn't actually do Dillis's master's. I did a business master's, but did all of my research in sustainability. And Dillis was my uh, dissertation mentor, a uh, supervisor. What was I call it her about? my mentor <laughs> because she is my mentor. Um, my she's dissert- the best person. She's just the best person actually ever. Um, I, it, my dissertation was about upcycling. Actually, it was about. I knew uh, that actually. Yeah. yeah. So I wrote about um, stock that was denied on delivery because there's a lot. What does that even mean? Um, so it's the stuff that never makes it to the shop floor. But because uh, they deny it on delivery. So they deny it at the warehouse because of some kind of quality fault. They often, it will happen sometimes because they just decided the color is not what they want anymore, but they'll make up a reason. And there's a huge amount of waste being generated by this denied on delivery stock. And it often goes back and the suppliers end up having to pay for it. It's a very untold, untalked about I was about to say, I've never actually piece. had this conversation before. Yeah, and so I wrote a business case for what you should be doing with that stock. And that was my dissertation. Which was, is? Um, use it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not real complicated, yep. again. Back to common sense and you get a pass. Yeah. You get an A plus yeah. and it was only one sentence. Yeah, <laughs> please use that stock. But actually, uh, but no, there was, we looked at a lot of different ways. How can you streams. do it? I mean, over diet, yeah. remake it into something else? How? We, how? I mean, we, all those things. You could do all those things. You could uh, re-diet, you could could remake it you could actually even just bring it into a different market of course the, the bigger thing there is really to think about why it's being denied you know w- what are the systems behind mm-hmm. that but and how can we change just them? even the waste alone and it was before things like the types of recycling technology that we're talking about now existed it was you know eight years ago how was it trying to get people to talk to you about this subject I was lucky. I was in a. I was working um, at a company where I was able to do a bit of digging internally um, at the time. Won't name them either, but I was able to kind of see what was looking, how that worked, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I was able to talk to a lot of people in the upcycling community, like Ursula. Even that's how I met Ursula De Castro, who's amazing. Another also. friend of this podcast, yes. who I'm actually her lodger this week. And I actually, I don't know if Ursula even knows that's how she knows me, but <laughs> I met her very briefly when I was doing it and talked to her. But um, talked to a lot of people in that kind of upcycling community about what they learned as well and they were very open of course Um, let's talk about being very open and also this whole need to collaborate and share knowledge and you know I'm asking if anyone wanted to share it with you then we're now at a place where we absolutely need to share knowledge across the industry if we're going to shape it into a more sustainable future segue alert what is happening with the United Nations it's so exciting it is. There is a charter that is being released publicly on the 10th of December um, for the fashion industry to address climate change. And Stella announced it uh, at Business, Business of fashion. fashion, yeah, Voices, which is a great event, honestly, extremely well put on event. Um, very, you know, we're very proud to be announcing it. It's, of course, not ours alone. It's something that's been worked on by a lot of brands, um, NGOs, stakeholders. The UN is leading it. And it's just, it's 16 commitments that are, again, more or less common sense when it comes to addressing climate change that brands can make to say, I am going to do this. I am going to work towards decarbonization. I'm going to commit to the COP21 pathway. And here are some things that I need to do to do that. Could you give me an example of one of the commitments then? I mean, one of the more simple ones, which I think is probably one of the more powerful ones, is just a commitment to report your greenhouse gas emissions year on year and the commitment towards COP21. If we don't know, we can't change it. And I mean, by doing that, like if you're, if you are actually, you know, by signing it, you're saying I will work towards the COP21 pathway, which is decarbonization by 2050. Um, we'll share some links in the show notes to COP21, to the Paris Agreement, to where we're at with that and what the landscape looks like now at COP24, which is happening as we record this in Poland. And there's things about low carbon logistics around committing towards working on the kind of methodology and thinking around science-based targets. I mean, again, it is kind of common sense, but it's very clear. It's just Mm -hmm. 16 things. And I think it's something that any company that's saying that they're looking at sustainability needs to be committing to. 
Um, shameless plug, I just wrote a book that is all about climate change. When I started on that path, I think I'm actually psychic. Um, when I started on that path, people raised eyebrows. What? You work in fashion? What have you got to say about climate change? To which I said, no, I don't know anything about it, which is why I want to be able to relay information from experts about it, because we need to understand. And I was writing about activism. But I was at the time quite, you know, it was quite hard to make that link between fashion and climate change. I came at this through activism and climate change and the fact that as world citizens, we need to be informed and we need to take action. But it's interesting to see how this conversation specifically about fashion and climate change is evolving now. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I think that in some ways it's it feels new, like from the communications point of view, but I don't think that it is actually new. And I think it depends who you ask if it's new. I mean, if you asked a farmer, is climate change new? They would be like, absolutely oh not. <laughs> like, Thanks for thinking that's yeah. just happened. <laughs> but I mean, we rely on farmers, right? Like fashion is built by farmers. You know, cotton is farmed, wool is farmed. And if you actually go far enough back into your supply, chains, you know, true transparency, true traceability, it's not a new topic to you. The conversation around action on climate change has become mired in politics. Don't need to tell you that. But my argument is always that it ought to be above politics. doesn't matter what party you vote for, although it might do if they're not acting here. But the conversation itself is about the future of humanity. I'm sure that you're aware of it, but I just want to read this amazing and very, very impactful quote that David Attenborough delivered at the COP24. And actually, I'm going to give this over to David because I think you need to hear it in his voice. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale. Our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The world's people have spoken. Their message is clear. Time is running out. They want you the decision makers, to act now. So Claire, how do you feel about this moment we're living through? What's your take on the kind of politicisation of climate change and also the denial of the science? It's upsetting, mm. <laughs> deeply. I mean, I find it a very worrying, like, all of it's very worrying. It's hard not to have anxiety over the science coming out. I think that anyone who ignores the science is... I mean, just in a state of denial, I suppose, which I, on some level, sympathize with because it is quite overwhelming, but at the other time, I mean, there's, there's absolutely no excuse for not paying attention to science, in my opinion. And I, I am American, so I feel particularly annoyed about my government not taking it seriously. Mm. Um, it's really Same upsetting to me. Yeah. That's very hard for me right now. I really don't understand how in a country like the US, which is going to be deeply affected by climate change. Already is. Already I mean, look is. at the science. I know. And, and the Although, flooding. of course, the fires have nothing to do with climate change. It's all to do with forestry yes, management. Yes, And the fact that Miami <laughs> is sinking. But, <laughs> no. oh my God. but it's, it's hard for me to, to reconcile how that's possible. And I think that you know, climate change is being talked about as the greatest crisis that we have to deal with. And I believe that. I believe it is our greatest crisis in this moment. And I, I also think it's important for us. I mean, I think that it's an issue that we have to think globally about and realize our place in the global world, you know, for individuals or governments or really however you have power. Or business. Or business, absolutely, as a business. I mean, as a business, we see the global nature of everything. Our, our supply chains are global, you know, and in the fashion industry, and I think that's part of why the climate charter is so powerful, is that fashion industry shares a lot. You know, whether you are us or a much larger, you know, even a sports brand, like we're all buying cotton. Cotton's coming from more or less the same places on the planet. We may be using different farms, but we're near each other and we overlap and it's, it's global, you know, and it's coming from very far flung places, but we see that. And I think we in the fashion industry, at least on the sustainability side, understand the kind of global nature of these topics. But I think it's important for all of us to start to think about them as we are part of this whole system and climate change is going to affect every single one of us. It's often talked about how it's going to affect the most vulnerable people on the planet, which is true, because that's where the biggest impacts are going to exist. I but know, it doesn't matter. It's so going to affect everybody. Yeah, but it's all, the awful part of this is that the rich, lucky, privileged people like me are able to cocoon ourselves from the worst of the effects of this often. It depends on extreme weather. But, you know, it, we know that, and this is less relevant to Stella McCartney, but that, for example, Bangladesh has four million garment workers, most of whom are women not paid a living wage, yeah. and most of whom are on the front line of this. Absolutely. Bangladesh is going to sink. Yep. Yeah, no, we and we don't work in Bangladesh, but yes. I mm. mean... But, but I, guess, I guess my question is... Um, 
You obviously, as a business and personally, believe that the fashion industry can have a part to play in trying to work towards alleviating some of this stuff around climate change. Yes, absolutely. And I think that, I think it does tie into this concept and conversation around traceability. Um, I was going to ask you why yeah, that's so important to you. So it is really important to me. And I think it's important to me in two different kind of veins. So in one way, I think it's important because the conversation currently around traceability is only extending to the factory, which is a very, very small piece of the supply chain. Companies are being rated on that, which is fine. It's a good step forward. You know, I, I think it's great the progress that has been made around companies releasing their factory lists. However, I have been in situations where I have heard brands cite that as basically why they're sustainable. And they are not the same thing. Transparency and sustainability, sustainability is of course a very loaded word, but they are not the same thing. And releasing your factory list is also not the same thing as traceability in my opinion, because it is a very, very shallow layer of a very long supply chain. And so when we're talking about climate change, we need to be talking about real traceability. We need to be talking about getting back to the farms because when we look at our supply chain impact, at least here at Stella, which I think is relatively representational of everyone's, is between 50 and 60% of our overall business impact is at the raw material stage. So that's the farm, the field, the forest. Is that right? That's the very furthest piece of the supply chain, and that is where the biggest impact is. And that doesn't matter if we're talking about water or climate, but certainly with climate, is that farming has a huge climate impact. You know, cutting down of ancient endangered forest, huge climate impact. Bad agricultural practices, heavy pesticides use, all of that has a huge climate mm-hmm. impact. You know, soil is the largest terrestrial storing body of carbon. And so soil health actually has a huge part to play in alleviating climate change. And one of the things that we're really interested in, that I'm personally extremely interested in, is this idea of regenerative agriculture. Oh, and that was my last bit. Yeah. And it's, I wasn't sure how to get there, but there you are. I, I mean, it. as a questioner. I mean, regenerative agriculture has to be part of uh, fashion's response to climate change because we are using a lot of cotton. I mean, polyester is the most used material in the industry, but cotton is right behind it. And cotton is extremely impactful. I mean, it's something that people are aware of, but I don't think they think about the carbon impact. They don't think about the climate impact of cotton. And we are piloting right now in Turkey some kind of radical, but actually very kind of old school farming practices around no-till. What does that mean? Like, so instead of digging up the soil to plant, we're using, um, or we're going to be using, we're starting, um, it'd be using cover crops instead. I don't know what that means. um, It's basically using, so in between cotton growing, you plant a different crop that it's, and those crops do what they need to for the soil. So they they aerate it. Crops, they can example. be food crops. And when you pull them out, it's kind of aerating it. And then you just plant without tilling, which actually helps lock the carbon ah. away. And then using compost is a really big part of that because compost starts to bring back up soil health. And so we've been working with this scientist, um, Dr. Johnston, out of New Mexico, who has really been pioneering this kind of climate science and farming going hand in hand. And again, compost is not a new thing, obviously. Um, but he's been really looking at the true science behind compost and the, the bio, the and biosphere. And how we could lock carbon into the soil. Yeah, and, and how so we it's could building. Have... Yep, and it's building really healthy compost. It actually takes a year to grow the compost. So we're not going to see. We won't see these results right away. It's like these are long. Again, two years. <laughs> Everything takes two years, but it's really building this health back into the soil where it's able to start locking carbon back away. So instead of releasing carbon, which is what it's doing right now, it starts to sink in the carbon, and that. If everyone in the world, which I know is very hopeful thinking, but if every company in the world said, all right, let's really focus on this piece, you could have a ridiculous impact. It would be incredible. And of course, we're talking about organic practices, but I'm actually not talking about certifying right away because right now, you know, cotton globally, only 1% of that is organic. Is that right? I didn't know that. Gosh, it's right not around much, that, it? it's nothing. And you know, I've heard again. I've heard a lot of big brands say, "Well, we could never use organic cotton. There's enough, not enough on the market." And of course, if they wanted to, they would drive the use and it would go up. But you know, that's fine. But the this a part of I think the barrier to organic is it takes three years, you know, for a farm to transition, and they aren't paid more during that time. And often they suffer from yields and things like that. And so the other thing that's really incredible about this type of farming we're talking about in Turkey is that all of the research that has been done to date shows tripling almost of yield. Wow. So not only are you locking away soil, you're actually getting a lot more cotton out of the process. So it is, I mean, it's pretty crazy, and it's good for farmers then. And so, I mean, I think you do need to add in certification over time, but right now it's more about impact and less about certification. Listening to you talk there, you may have heard me go, oh, because <laughs> I was just thinking. 
Stella McCartney is obviously the best fashion brand in the world. It's got the best clothes. I want them all. It's visually the best. You're the best, obviously. (laughs) Then look at the way that you're thinking about how this all pieces together as a jigsaw puzzle. How far reaching your work is, looking at regenerative agriculture, looking at climate impacts. This could be the future of fashion and how we ought to do things. I think it has so to be. Exciting. Yeah, and it, we have to make it fun. Like, and that's you know, Stella's really into that, and that's what we're working on now is figuring out how do we make this engaging and fun for people. And we just launched a we're foundation. Fun. You are fun. You are definitely this fun. fun. This is fun. <laughs> Sorry, what's your foundation? But we just launched um, second half of Stella's foundation. The first half's on oh, breast green. cancer. Yep, green. And a lot of that's going to be about how do we share this information. You know, we're, we're going to open source all of our knowledge. We're going to figure out how to share what we know in house because we've been doing this for a long time um, and we've learned a lot along the way we're not perfect we're not even close to perfect but we have learned and we want to share what we've learned so good. and at the same time we want to make it engaging for people and make it Stella make it fun you know because this is a heavy topic and it's okay that it's heavy but we also need to give people an entry into it where it's we're not preaching to them we're not asking them to read you know really complicated reports which I love same but, <laughs> but, which but I don't expect people... everyone to love them so that's what we're going to be working on over the next little bit is how do we do that you know and it's really exciting so um, sharing that information and I agree because it has to be the future of fashion it just has to be and we, we know all the dark stuff but I think the other really incredible thing about working here is there's a true sense of hope that we can do this better and I have it and Stella has it and we're always talking about like on to the next thing let's make it better yeah brilliant you've made it better for me Uh, thank you very much for me thank you thank you for doing this it's getting hard my parents feel that I'm defending you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.